The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Slow Burn Media and Phil Huffman present Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is, of course, a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's episode, we'll be doing something a little bit different. I speak with true crime author Vic Ferrari, and our conversation is a little bit more lighthearted than the typical fare that you get on this program. And during this time of year, we all need a little bit of a break from the, you know, monotony of bad news and I feel like this conversation with Vic was uh, was pretty entertaining, and I think you guys will understand why. He is a former New York City police detective, and he worked for the auto theft unit from 1987 until 2007. So it is an interesting conversation. He is a New York City police detective through and through, you can tell. And again, the conversation is... On the more lighthearted scale, there are some very funny stories in there. Uh, We do talk about some homicides, but again, this is a more lighthearted episode, and my conversation with Vic was great. All of his books are available on Amazon, and this week we will be discussing his new book. And let's just jump into my conversation with former NYPD detective Vic Ferrari. Thank you guys again for listening this week. This week on Who Killed, I am very lucky to be joined by author Vic Ferrari, who is a former NYPD detective, and he is here to talk about his new book. And welcome to the show, Vic. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bill. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And, you know, you reached out via Twitter and you know we hooked up that way and obviously you're a former police detective and give a, give my listeners just a little bit of background about what your books are about and you know the book that you're currently you know promoting um i'm a retired NYPD detective i grew up in the bronx um new york city kid um joined the NYPD i became a detective i think i had about 10 years in and then my last 10 i was a detective I worked in the Organized Crime Control Bureau, specifically the uh, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and anything with car thieves, chop shops, vehicle export out of the country, stolen vehicles being exported out of the country, sophisticated scams, insurance fraud, um, mobsters, chop shops, you know, the cases like that I worked on. So after I retired uh, about 15 years ago, I got into writing. And uh, I've had some success with several of my books that are NYPD themed. 
And, you know, like I said earlier to you, um, people like yourself are nice enough to put me on your show. And uh, my latest book, Grand Theft Auto Stories from Inside the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, is just that. Everything you ever wanted to know about the stolen car industry, but were afraid to ask. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting title, especially, you know, with the Grand Theft Auto games, video games being in the zeitgeist and being so popular with the younger generations. And I think it to put like a true aspect on it and true perspective from your perspective law perspective it's got to be interesting and especially when you think about you know I, I i'm a writer so i also think about you know fictional versions of like movies like gone in 60 seconds where they're where like there's shipping containers and there's all that other stuff and it's like you just mentioned shipping cars overseas and you know b- busting up mob chop shops and things like that like could you give me like an example of you know one of the bigger busts that you had or one of the more unusual yeah sure um probably around uh 2000 we were noticing a trend in stolen audis specifically the a6 models specifically silver and black and the vehicles were disappearing all over the place and they weren't turning up so usually you know a car is Cars, vehicles get stolen in trends. There's a market for them, be it it's a hot new car and people get into accidents. So then the thieves steal them to provide the parts to body shops. Well, these Audis were getting stolen, but they weren't turned up. They weren't turning up. They weren't turned up, uh, turning up chopped up or abandoned or stripped. They were just vanished off the face of the earth. So we knew they were going, we knew they had to be leaving the country. And what wound up happening was they were getting stolen at such a rate. They were, I mean, they were hitting dealerships where 10, 15 cars over the weekend, which is vanishing. So what really? it turned out to be was there was a uh, ex Chinese military intelligence officer, which I think he still was working with the Chinese government. But anyway, he came over and he was living in Bay Ridge. And what he did was he used to go to salvage shops and body shops. And he hooked up with a Jamaican guy from the Bronx. The Jamaican guy from the Bronx farmed out uh, a steel team of guys that would go out and steal Audi A6s. Now, the the Jamaican was paid $5,000 a car. The Jamaican would pay the thieves anywhere between $500 and $1,000 to take the cars. Once the cars were stolen, they were brought back to Brooklyn. They were put in a warehouse on Metropolitan Avenue in Brooklyn, and Chinese nationals were loading the cars into shipping containers. So what they would do is they would put two cars in a shipping container, two Audis in a shipping container. They would take the air out of the tires so the vehicles would sit lower in the container. Then they would build wooden platforms where they could drive two more cars up into the thing. So they were putting three to four stolen Audis per shipping container. From there, the the containers were uh, driven out to Newark, New Jersey, where they were put on trains and railed across the United States to California, where they were put on shipping containers in Long Beach and sent out to the Pacific Rim. Now, you might ask, who's getting these cars? Like, who in China has this money? Well, government officials. So the cars were going over there to rich people in China, specifically government officials, and they were paying between fifty dollars and $60,000 a car. So it was a lucrative business for everybody. Um, and the reason the vehicles were silver and black is not because they were Oakland Raider fans. <laughs> Government officials drive silver and black vehicles over in China. So 
um, while you have this all going on, um, we needed Asia, NYPD is 40,000 cops. So we had Asian cops monitoring wiretaps on the Asians. We had Spanish cops monitoring the car thieves who were speaking in Spanish. We had a couple of detectives that that were, uh, what's the expression? Jamaican isn't an, a, a, our, our, some of our thieves were also Jamaican, had heavy Jamaican accents. So we needed their expertise because some of the words they were using, we had no idea what they were talking about. Our wire room looked like something out of a movie. I mean, you had multiple languages going on in, in one place. The United Nations of, of uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it was like. So we're on the wall. So now once we're up on these guys' phones and we're following them around, it starts to dawn on us that the Spanish car thieves are in the murder for hire business. So in addition to getting paid for the stolen cars, they're doing hits on the side. And one of the guys that was stealing the cars for the Chinese, we linked him to about 13 homicides. I mean, it was just like something like you pull a string on a sweater and it just keeps unraveling, unraveling, unraveling. So, I mean, I know you're going to have a lot of questions with this, but long story short, once we took the case down, I mean, we locked up a handful of Chinese nationals who wound up going to jail and then being deported. Um, We locked up all the thieves, some of which are in jail for the rest of their life because they were involved in homicides, covered countless cars. We went to the State Department and said, hey, you know, we think the Chinese government's involved in it and they really kind of blew us off. Um, so it was a really good case. It was run out of um, it was run out of the Bronx, but actually it was prosecuted in Westchester County. I don't know if you watch Fox News. Janine Piero who's on TV. Judge Janine, her office actually ran that case. It was a joint effort with the Westchester County District Attorney's Office and the NYPD. OK, that's uh, yeah, that first <laughs> Yeah, where do you begin? The first question I have about that, which is, I guess, a basic one is they're paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars for the cars. How much were the cars or they were they just not able to get them in China? Correct. OK, OK. Correct. So they, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know really the logistics behind it, but a lot of these countries, it, it, it's just the tariffs and stuff. Well, when the cars were getting shipped there, they weren't getting shipped as cars. Right. They, they, you know, they, they pay people off. And so this way they can get the cars in without having to pay the heavy tar- tariffs and taxes on them. Sure. That, yeah, that's okay. So that, so that's, int- that makes sense. And my, my thought is what were the Chinese nationals or the, people you know the officials over there thinking when all these other guys are driving around in audis and they're like hey where can i get one <laughs> yeah where can i where, where can i get one of these right is, is this how and so you said you had all these different you know people on the wire and i mean man that is that is a wild what about the 13 homicides what did those how did those At least get, how did those what were those like just cover-ups like Keep no, no. Um, what it was is, well, there were several guys that did homicides. Um, so there, there were these guys, this crew of thieves were, I mean, they, they would, they'd steal anything that wasn't nailed down. And what they would do is they would steal cars, they would steal motorcycles. And what they would do is they would go in a gang, right? And they would mm-hmm. ride around the city on motorcycles. And, you know, they'd see you with a brand new, at the time, Honda CBR. They kind of surround you. They'd ride up to you with a light. And one of the guys would get off the back of the bike with a gun and say, 
get off the bike. And if you didn't get off that bike fast enough, a couple of people died that way. They, they lost their lives because they either hesitated or didn't get off that bike fast enough and they killed them, left them dead for the street, mm-hmm. left them dead in the street. Um, these guys also would travel out of state and do commercial burglaries. So while we were up on the wire, they went down to Virginia. I think, uh, I think it was Woodbridge. Um, they went down to a, um, a Honda dealership motorcycle a harley or a honda i forget i mean we're talking 20 years ago but they went to a motorcycle dealership in virginia and did a commercial burglary with a u-haul truck (laughs) and brought back stolen bikes helmets jackets i mean if you've ever been to a motorcycle dealership parts i mean they, they cleared the place out and then they were selling the materials piecemeal to a garage this guy had in the bronx well one of the kids in the neighborhood figured out where they were keeping the stolen stuff he did a burglary and ripped off a couple of things from this guy's garage. Well, he didn't take kindly to it. So two of these thieves went out and killed the guy. And then another guy in the group, he was literally a hitman. I mean, if you had $5,000, he'd kill somebody for you. And uh, he did a murder up in um, Hartford. What, what happened was um, years before we got involved in this, there were these three guys that were robbing banks or roaming cars up in Hartford. One went to jail and didn't rat out his friends. When he got out of jail, he went to his two friends and said, hey, I kept my mouth shut for X amount of years. You guys are now running the drug trade in Hartford. I want my cut. Well, they kind of didn't want a new partner. So they kind of patted him on the head, treating him as a lackey. Go pick up this kilo. Go beat this guy up. Go kill this guy. Go deliver this. This guy wasn't going for it. So what he did was he kidnapped one of the couriers put him in the trunk of his car for a weekend, beat the hell out of the guy, tortured him, took his drugs, sent him back to his old former partners and said, tell those guys I'm serious. <laughs> I'm a partner or there's going to be a lot of problems. Well, they didn't want a partner. So what they did was they contracted our thieves down in the Bronx who went up there with a motorcycle and a U-Haul truck. They followed this guy around. Um, they pulled up to him on a motorcycle shot him in the head, they cut him up. I mean, shot him like 13, 14 times, took off on a motorcycle, drove the motorcycle into a U-Haul truck, closed the U-Haul truck, took the U-Haul truck down I-95 back to the Bronx, chopped up the bike, threw the gun away. So, I mean, these guys were just doing hits. I mean, if you had money and access to these guys, they'd kill you. Yeah, and that sounds like uh, straight out of a movie. No pun in, I mean, that is, that sounds just like a movie script. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it is, you know, that's the crazy thing is the reality is crazier than what somebody can come up with a, in a writer's room. And, um, wow, that, that case, geez. So how many, how many officers did you guys have working on that? Uh, my office had, let's say my office probably was using at the time two teams. So there's probably 10 NYPD guys. Uh, we had the New York state police. They probably had 10 guys involved and the Westchester County DA's office had five, probably about 25 people. But then when the case gets taken down, when, when, when the crap hit the fan, mm-hmm. that's even another story that's interesting because the case was supposed to the case kind of got blown up. It got exposed. And once we got the bad guys knew we were on to them, it was one of those things we had to round everybody up. So then we had to call in reinforcements and start grabbing guys. I mean, me and another detective literally grabbed two of the factory workers coming out of an apartment with a suitcase with tickets. 
airline tickets, they were gone. I mean, we just caught them literally on their way to Kennedy. Wow. Wow. So how long does an investigation like that take to to finally get to that point where you take them down? Um, well, the case started in Westchester about a year before. They were okay. on to them, but the New York State Police got too close to the to the Asians and the Asians closed up shop. They closed the factory and they vanished. And the cars were registered to fictitious people. The driver's license they had were to fictitious people. I mean, the, the amount of um, insulation these guys did to protect themselves from prosecution, I mean, was quite impressive. Um, a case like that, I mean, you kind of want to see, I mean, once the homicides started coming in, these guys were talking about homicides. I mean, that kind of paramount, that trumps everything. I mean, sure. you want to solve these homicides and find out what else they're into. I mean, yeah, we got them for all these cars, but now they're, now they're doing burglaries. Now they're doing homicides. So it was at the point, it, it was getting to the point that had we heard anything of them plotting a homicide, obviously we were going to pull them off the street. But um, what wound up happening was they got greedy. Um, the Asians wanted more cars and they were real. I mean, these guys were stealing 30 cars a month and the Asians wanted more. I mean, it, the, the conversations on the phone were so funny. Like one time it was Valentine's Day and the Jamaican was pleading with the Chinese guy that was running the scam because the Asian guy wanted more cars and the Jamaican's like, hey, man, it's Valentine's Day. They want <laughs> to spend time with the ladies. And you hear a pause on the phone and the Chinese guy goes, I don't care about that. I want cars. So <laughs> you had a cultural thing going, like these guys wanted to take a couple of days off from stealing and the Asians wanted the cars. Um, the, the way the whole thing blew up was the main thief, um, the Spanish guy, Mario, he, he was getting pressure to bring in more cars and hire more guys to steal for him. So they were going to take 10 or 15 cars in one shot. Mario knew a guy on the Upper East Side of Manhattan that was a parking attendant. So he paid the guy three grand and Mario shows up with 10 friends. They get the keys to 10 cars. They tie up the friend and put him in the trunk and say, give us about 15 minutes, a half hour, then start banging on the trunk and call the police. When the police come, just say, you know, you didn't recognize these guys. They were wearing ski masks and they took the car. So the parking attendant's in on this particular theft. So we've got, we've got detectives outside the garage. We've got cameras up. I mean, we've got the phones. We're listening to this thing go live, right? Like a charm. They go in with 10 guys. They leave with 10 cars. The cars are in the garage in Brooklyn with the gate down. When the guy starts pounding on the car, the precinct cops come. They take a report for, uh, you know, a burglary, an armed robbery, and the whole nine yards, right? So great. The cars are in the, uh, the, the, the warehouse in Brooklyn. So you hear on the phone Mario talking to, like, one of his lieutenants. He goes, did you check those cars for GPS and LoJack? And the guy goes, Yeah. He goes, no, don't yeah, yeah, yeah me. Were the cars swept? And the guy goes, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. Well, they weren't. So when we do cases like this, we don't tell the precinct cops what we're up to because for a variety of reasons, cops are, are, are curious by nature. The last person you tell is the precinct cop if you've got a case going on in a place because they'll park in front of it. They're curious. They're like children. They want. It's like if you tell your kid, I got Christmas presents in the bedroom. What are they going to do when you're not home? They're going to look under the bed and see what you got. Never did that so, as a kid. Right. So, so priests and cops can blow up your case. And then sometimes it's sad, but sometimes and it's rare, but you got dirtbag cops that will try to sell the information. So 
we keep it separate from what's going on from the precinct cops. What will wound up happening is that LoJack or GPS is now pinging in the garage. The precinct cops go running in like the cavalry and they find a bunch of Chinese guys. You go, what, what, what's Chinese guys? And they had built a false wall so they couldn't see the cars either. Mm. So the Chinese guy said, let me get my boss. They take off. They start calling everybody. And now the phones are blowing up. The cops, the cops at the warehouse. Okay. So now everybody's taking off in different directions. So we had to basically get a team of 50 guys in like an hour and just start picking these guys off. And we got everybody. I mean, it was, uh, we're very lucky. So oh, that is, that is insane. And who, so who was the, was it Mario that was getting the most of the money? Like, cause you said they were paying 50 60 grand and the Ian the Jamaican Ian the Jamaican was getting paid five grand a car mm-hmm. um Mario was getting probably a thousand a car um okay. so so it's like so every it's like anything else like every time something touches someone's hand the price goes up sure so the Jamaican was getting paid five thousand from from the Asians then he would give Mario a thousand or two thousand, and then Mario would pay his guys five hundred, three hundred. I guess however he deemed them, you know, how many cars they could bring him, how good they were, you know what I mean? Right. The relationship he had with them, how long they were stealing with him for. So, so what happened? What what happened to that big chunk there, though? Like, who gets that money that the that the Chinese nationals paid? You know, if they're paying fifty, sixty then over there so so the guy min jin yang the, so the, um, so yeah okay so it's somebody on the chinese side that's getting the most of the money right but but the guy but the guy but the guy running it in brooklyn was was definitely a partner in it oh and, for sure he told us he had a bro- well he didn't tell us but we got it on the phones he had a brother in California, <laughs> supposedly doing the same thing. But he told Mario, when they all got locked up, oh, Mario told us that. When Mario got locked up, when he flipped, because Mario flipped and started giving us all the homicides, because Mario never pulled the trigger, as far as we know, but Mario was the getaway driver in multiple homicide. Oh. So Mario told us um, that while they were all sitting in jail, um, the Asian told him, you know, the Asian was like impressed with Mario's work ethic. And he says, <laughs> if we get if we get out, he goes, I got a brother in California that I can send you to who's doing the same thing. Wow. And this is that, 20 years ago they were doing this crap. Yeah, it sounds very sophisticated as far as like, I mean, just the amount of hoops that they were jumping through. And I mean, they had laser coated keys by at that point. I think, didn't they? I mean, that- they did, but not on the Audis. They didn't have the immobilizers yet. Gotcha. Okay. So All they right. just punching the ignition and they were gone. Gone. Wow. So that must have been one of the largest cases that you worked, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Um, and probably the most interesting. Sure. What, who's the, you know, I, I, it's always good to talk to, to former cops because they always have former detectives because they always have great stories about the not so smart <laughs> uh car thieves <laughs> you have any uh interesting tales of uh you know people uh not being so smart <laughs> oh yeah i mean listen uh career criminals are smart it's just that they're they're lazy that they don't want to work nine to five jobs i mean and some of them are fascinating you know, and, and you're right. I mean, some aren't so smart. Um, 
a guy in my office was pretty funny case. I went with him to lock the woman up. So what she would do is she would advertise when Craigslist first started 15, 20 years ago, whenever it started, she would advertise her car for sale and people would come, they kick tires, they'd look at the car and uh, they'd negotiate a price and um, she'd sell them the car. She'd sign the title over to them, give them a set of keys and, you know, pocket the money. And, but she would talk to them and ask them questions where they were from and yada, yada, yada. But what she would always do is she would always order through DMV a duplicate title and have a, a spare set of keys. So she'd wait a month or two, go back and steal her car, <laughs> go to a police station with the title and find a cop that wasn't so smart and say, I, you know, I don't know how this happened, but I'm, you know, my name's on this title, blah, 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 blah. And get the police to cancel the alarm for her. Right. <laughs> And then she would just go out and slap the plates back on her car. Well, she, she did it like three or four times selling the same car to three <laughs> or four victims until finally, you know, some guy. And I, I think it was a Toyota Camry. God, I think I got dementia. Um, I think it was a, a newer Toyota Camry. And, um, you know, after this guy got his car stolen, he went back on Craigslist looking for a Toyota Camry and he sees the same car advertised. <laughs> and he goes, how the hell? And he goes by the woman's house and sees the car and he goes, I got screwed. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then he called, you know, our office and then one of our detectives looked into it. And it was funny because we were, it's, it's actually in my book, Grand Theft Auto, because we're, we're taking her down to Bronx Central Book and he says, I guess crime doesn't pay. And she goes, it did for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing that I saw, in the, you know, in the summary about, you know, about the Grand Theft Auto. I mean, 100,000 cars and... Oh, 150. 150,000 cars. Is that a year? Yeah. Yeah, in the 90s. That is insane. And so, gosh. So you worked, when did you start? Uh, 1987. 1987. So you were there through the whole transition, 9-11. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, so as far as um, you said organized crime, you got involved. In, I mean, were there, were there situations where you kind of ran into Sopranos type characters? Yeah. Or, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, that ran operations like that? Yeah. Um, I worked out of the Bronx Manhattan team. Um, okay. Our guys that worked, because the auto crime division at the time was 120 members. Um, our Brooklyn, Staten Island, and Queens team were more um, the Soprano type guys, like John Gotti's son-in-law. And um, uh, a, lot, a, a lot of these guys, I mean, were capos and different you know, of the five families. But yeah, we, we came across them all the time. Sure. On, on, on case takedowns, like they had a case on a chop shop or, or a criminal organization, you know, when it was time to take that case down, they would pull resources from the Bronx and Manhattan. And it was almost like mission impossible. You, you you'd be told on a need to know basis. Um, a couple of days before you'd, you'd be told, listen, there's going to be a case takedown, be out at the queen's office at 4am on Tuesday. You get up to three o'clock in the morning, you get your coffee, you drive out there and you're given a folder. You open up the folder and there's a guy's photo, his address. If he's not there, go here. If he's not there, look there. And, you know, they want us pulling people out of bed by 6 a.m. before they can start getting on the phones and disappearing or destroying evidence. But, oh, yeah, I picked up <laughs> a couple of really dangerous characters. Yeah, that's uh, that's got to be super interesting working in the Bronx and just in that whole that whole God, 1987, I mean, that was kind of what, 
New York City was pretty rough at that point, or was it starting to change? In no, it was rough. It was probably, I think, and I think you're right. I mean, it was rough when I got hired. I think the turning point was Giuliani, and that would have been, I was in narcotics at the time. Um, 93, 94 is when things started, crime started going down. Um, you know, people were starting to be held accountable for the nonsense that was going on in New York City. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Right. Yeah, I, I I knew it was Giuliani that was that was involved with a lot of that. And um so when you were so narcotics, man, that must have been pretty interesting too. It was, you know, it's funny. I didn't really want to go to narcotics. It's funny. Um I was Is in plain clothes. I'm sorry. Is that not I was just going to ask, is that not a desired? Uh, no, it was. Um, how do I explain this? Because it's a, it's a different world. So I was in plain clothes at the precinct level, uh, pickpockets, robberies, stolen cars at the precinct level. And um, everybody's, you know, everybody's coming to you. You're going to put in for narcotics. You, you know, you, you want to be a detective. It's almost like, you know, when you're in high school and everybody's pushing you to go to college. You know what I mean? Like I was really happy where I was, but everybody was like, you know, you know, there's bigger and better things for you out there. And I wanted to go to auto crime, which at the time to get in there, you had to have a, you had to have a relative that was above the rank of captain. There was no way I was getting in there. So I put in for narcotics and um, I worked in Manhattan North narcotics for about a year and a half. I, I really didn't particularly enjoy narcotics because it's the same thing every day. Every day, um, your sergeant hands you a hundred bucks. You take the hundred bucks. Buy and bust. Buy you, and bust. You, you got to make change, right? You make change. You break down into smaller denominations. Then you got to photocopy all the money. You got to photocopy all the uh, denominations, right? Then you got to give it. Then you got to give the money to your undercover. Then you get in a car with a sergeant and another detective that's going to be taking the arrest. And then you drive out. And your undercovers get out, they go to a corner, they make a buy, they step off, they get back in the car, they give the description, you move in, you grab three, four guys, you know, selling drugs, you go to the next set, the next set, the next set, and so you get 10, 15 guys in a van. Then you go to the precinct, and then you process all these arrests, and mm. you, you're locking up the dregs of society. And I mean, you're talking about you're dealing with people every day with AIDS, hepatitis, tuberculosis. I mean, the people that are selling drugs on the street, they're street urchins. You know what I mean? They're heroin addicts. But the object of the game is to buy up. 
You're hoping one of them can lead you to a street manager who can lead you to a guy that's running a spot who can read, lead you to distributors. So you're buying up constantly. But I mean, my memories are narcotics where I was sick all the time because everybody's coughing on you because everybody, I mean, you're talking about homeless people that are out in the rain, out in the elements. And I mean, it, it's just a depressing, you, you, it's just depressing. And after about a year and a half of this, I said, you know, a detective shield for me just isn't worth it. I'll go back in a precinct and do another 15 years and retire. But I was lucky enough that my sergeant narcotics was an auto guy. And we always used to talk about cars and he was a connected guy in the NYPD. And once he got into the auto crime division, he ran into me one day and he said, you should put in. I go, I'll never get in. He goes, I'll get you in. And that's pretty much how I got in. On that note, let's take a break and hear from this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Being a true crime podcaster, I can research some pretty dark subject matter, and every once in a while I'll need a pick-me-up and a little bit of relaxation. And when I do, I turn to Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that you can play right on your phone, and it's a blast. You'll have a mindful experience as you move through all the different levels and face challenging puzzles. Best Fiends is a fun, casual game that really anyone can play. I mean, I'm flying up these levels, and I'm definitely not an expert. Best Fiends updates monthly with new levels and events, so it will always stay fresh. Best Fiends won't take up much of your time, but what it will do is it will help you stay in contact with your friends and family while still social distancing. Another great feature, you don't even need an internet connection to play. The game has a gorgeous design, and I find it helps relax my mind. Plus, the Q characters just make it all the better. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I've had to deal with my fair share of anxiety and depression in my life, and I'm happy to say that there is now an easy way to get help. Because if there is something that interferes with your happiness or is holding you back from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can now connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient because it needs to be in our hectic lives. So go get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And guess what? If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. There are even apps available for your computer or smartphone. So whether you're suffering from anxiety, depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, sleeping trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, or self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The best part is, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All right, we're back. So 
<clears throat> my big question is what made auto crime so desirable for being and being such a hard position to get it's clean okay, okay. so like how i just spelled out like how mm-hmm. narcotics is it's sure. exciting a lot can go wrong in narcotics. Um, the probability of getting into a shooting are higher. You're dealing with more people with guns. People that, that are selling drugs face a higher jail sentence than someone stealing a car. The, the stakes are higher in, in something like that. Um, the people you're dealing with, can you can get AIDS really easy. I mean, getting stuck with a needle. I mean, people don't realize this, but when you're locking up people in narcotics, you're going into their pockets. Half these people don't even know where they are. And you'll ask them, you got a needle, you got a spike? No, no, no. And the next thing you know, you're pulling a needle out of their pocket. I mean, they just shot up. Sometimes they don't remember and sometimes they don't care. Um, you're fighting with these people sometimes. They don't, want, they don't want to be arrested. They don't want to put their hands behind their backs. And the next thing you know, you're covered in blood with a guy that's you know HIV positive or a guy that's got hepatitis C. You, you know what I mean? Auto crime, you're dealing with car thieves. Um, there's not really much... That, there hasn't been as many corruption scandals. I don't think there's been any in auto crime, but um, but with narcotics, it just seems like every year, every couple of years, something somewhere happens where someone put their hand in the cookie jar. I mean, when I was in narcotics, um, there was a guy that um, he was he was like an alcoholic. He was always sweaty, just a, a, an odd kind of guy, and. Um, one time, one of the teams had done a, uh, a case takedown, and they had a couple of ounces of Coke on the table. And he just walked over, scooped some up, and went into the bathroom. And, you know, half the guys were like, is he kidding around? Like, what is he doing? And he comes out of the bathroom like nothing. So they called internal affairs. They went up to his house that night. And, you know, they dole, we call it dole because that's the name of the test, the drug test. They doled him at the, because uh, he lived upstate, they, they doled him at like a state trooper barracks. And he tested the highest, um, the highest um, positive test in NYPD history because he had just done coke. And, you know, that's how much of an addict he was that he did it in front of everybody. And they and to their credit, they turned him in. But auto crime was clean. I, I can't explain it. It's more like um, I think it makes, that makes sense. Banker or you want your kid to be an auto mechanic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I see virtues in both. You know, like I, I can totally see both sides of, of the coin on that one because like with narcotics i i could see how beaten you know buying busts and the hope you're basically just hoping that you'll get maybe to that person that is a next level right up. but in and the then, meantime it's a numbers game yeah and so you you i used to work in cold call sales and i had this manager benny bonanno believe it or not was his last name <laughs> ironically That's a great name i know you know especially since you worked in organized crime and yeah. you know but you know but no relation we'll say and uh he would he would say you know as my sales manager if you make 100 phone calls cold calls in a day and one person talks to you that's a good day and i'm like man that sucks like <laughs> right so basically that's like the kind of the same thing with oh, yeah buying and busting i think that's like the percentages are probably really low and i completely understand your description of it being dirty to clean and why wouldn't you want to be in a division or a, or a unit that isn't dealing with that lower tier of society on a daily basis and it also gives you a little bit more opportunity to flex your brain muscles 
you know. That's exactly it, because I, I was bored. I, I mean, literally, and people would say, how can you be bored working in narcotics? I go, oh my God, it's the same thing every day. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood. There were more car thieves in my neighborhood as a kid. Like, you know, I love to tell the story. Like people ask me, well, what was your introduction to car theft? It says, well, one day, freshman, I'll never forget this, freshman year of high school, me and another kid who I grew up with, who's actually became my partner in the police department, he's still a cop, we're playing oh, wiffle ball in front of his house. Wiffle ball. And this Buick Regal comes rolling through the street, and it's three guys we go to school with. Now, they're 14, so obviously <laughs> they don't have a driver's license. Back then, you needed 16 to have a permit in New York City back then with an adult. These guys were 14. They were freshmen in high school. They come rolling by us, waving in this Buick Regal with jersey plates. And we're like, what the fuck? You know, like, what, what, what is it? You're like, we're laughing. Like, they, they had to rob that car. And the next thing you know, the precinct cops come rolling around the block, right? So there's a car chase and they get away. And then and I went to Catholic school, you know? So the next day in Catholic school, we're in the cafeteria and I go, Hey Fitz, you know, uh, whoa, what, what, you know, it's like, we found, he goes, we found it. We, Cause it was, they used to dump a lot of stolen cars in the dumps. So what the kids would do is they would go into the dumps and learn how to drive. And then sometimes take the cars out of the dumps. And then, you know, once you figure out back then it's, it wasn't difficult to steal a car. If you had any kind of me- mechanical ability, you could figure it out. So my, and then I worked in a gas station as a kid and people were always bringing in cars. And so I, I kind of had an introduction to the world of auto theft before I was a cop. A lot of the mm-hmm. kids I grew up with became car thieves, you know, unfortunately got into drugs and, you know, they're not around, but my neighborhood, I, I used to see it so much. I used to know what to look for. I mean, with the older cars, with the older Chevys and general motors products, with, I don't know if you remember the steering column had like a long neck to the yep. steering wheel. Well, all you had to do was break that with a screwdriver or a hammer and there were two pins and you, I can't believe I'm giving an auto theft class. I feel like <laughs> such a rat, but I mean, it's just so easy to steal a car back then that bad guys would wrap a bandana around it or put something around it or the old vent windows on the Chevys or something. They pop out a vent window and tape it. Or th- There was a lot of tricks that you could just spot. And it, it, it's funny because sometimes I'm with my girlfriend even to this day, I'll spot an older car. And I'll go, I could take that car in 10 seconds. She goes, what? I says, I could take that car. Or I'll spot two kids in a car and I'll go, car stolen. She goes, how do you know? I said, the way they're looking. They're nervous wrecks in that car. I can just tell their body language. Like I would run that plate. If, you know what I mean? If I was still a cop. Yeah, I, I guess that probably never goes away. I mean, no. just that, that sixth sense of just knowing something's amiss and recognizing you know, things are, hmm, this maybe not, you know. It's kind of like Sesame Street, like one of these things is not like the other, you know what I mean? Touche, yeah. I mean, it's definitely interesting. And and so my one of my buddies, like one of my best friends actually is, a, is an auto mechanic. And so I've been around cars a lot and my other buddy's dad collects cars and um, he's really, really big into that. And so of... Uh, I'm interested just in like the whole theft aspect and, and how it, how it changed with technology. Did, did you see a big downturn in theft as the technology improved? Like as far as like laser coded keys and And you're right. So with with nowadays with, well, you got to realize something criminals adapt, you know, humans are adaptable creatures. Therefore, 
criminals are adaptable creatures, right? right. So, you know, they, I love when they say, well, violent crime is down, violent crime is down. Well, criminals kind of caught on that identity theft, right? Is the why would I, everyone's using a debit card. So why would I go into a store and point a gun at a guy where you're going to see my face, I might only get a hundred bucks. And depending on what state you live in, you may never see the light of day. Or I can figure out a way to pull money out of your bank account or hack into your Amazon account and send packages to my house or a third party. You're never going to see me. It's going to be in another jurisdiction and the police are not even going to know what to do with it. It could be bothered with it. Um, Auto crime. So with technology, a lot of your garden variety thieves, yeah, they got basically got left out in the cold because you know that you know the car they're not making those cars anymore. There's not a market for them anymore. I mean, you know, I'm sure if I drove around my neighborhood for two days, I could find a 1989 Toyota Camry that I could take, but no one would want it. There wouldn't be a body shop if I brought it to a chop shop. They go, what the hell am I going to do this car anymore, dude? Like, you know what I mean? You could bring it to a glass place. You know, you couldn't even part it out. No one wants it. You know what I mean? So those guys it's basically got worth in the bag. There's always going to be a market for auto theft. Um, there are things to steal cars, to, to, to program keys. Um, in New York City, I would say... Back then, 25% of the auto theft reports were fraudulent. We dealt with that uh, big time where people got in over their heads with their lease, um, a car loan. They don't want the car anymore. And, you know, report it stolen. Wait 30 days, get the check. And they would take it to a body shop that would make it disappear, um, change the VIN number and sell it to someone else. That's double dipping. So what I would do is, We'll go to a salvage yard. We'll get another VIN number. We'll switch it. I'll sell it to you. Report it stolen. The insurance compensates me and you're paying me for the car. You know what I mean? So there's just, there's just so much of it. Now you've been out of the force for close to what, 13 years now. Yeah. yeah. And so you said that you got bored when you retired <laughs> um, and and how has writing been able to uh, fill that void? It, it fills my time, that's for sure. Um, you know, when I first started, at first, I, I had to be careful. I, I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or divorced because uh, my other books, like Grand Theft Auto is, is, I mean, there's funny stories in there, but that's everything about the auto theft industry, what to look for, buying a stolen car, and just my stories of how people stole cars. Um, my other books, the NYPD's Flying Circus or NYPD Through the Looking Glass, that's more of funny stories and ridiculous things that happened to me and characters I worked with and people's peculiarities and just the ins- what goes on inside an NYPD police station, what you don't see. I didn't want, you know, I mean, a lot of my friends are cops. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't want to alienate 90% of my friends. So I had to be careful. I had to change, you know, obviously the names, the dates, the places, the precincts. I had to add characters that didn't exist and take characters out. Um, once I figured that out, then there was no stopping me because now, I mean, it's therapeutic. I get, you know, it's, 
And what's funny is my friends will call me up now because at first they were terrified. Like, well, what are you writing about? You know, like, you, know like, you didn't put this in there, did you? And I, you know, <laughs> my wife doesn't know that we were, you know, we were out fishing that day. You know what I mean? A lot of that crap, <laughs> nothing big, but just stuff that's going to cause someone a pain in the ass at home. So, um, but once I figured that out, um, it's therapeutic, it's funny. And just, there's just times like, I'll be out with friends and I'm telling a story and I'll go, oh, that's a great idea. And like, what? And I just start writing something down because I totally forgot about that. Or Facebook's a great thing because some of my friends will go, remember so-and-so? And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about that guy. He was nuts. You know what I mean? And then we, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I always keep like a little uh, notebook or just even jot down on just a scrap piece of paper. Like if you have an idea or something and with Siri, on my phone i can just be like take a note <laughs> you know if i have some yeah. sort of brain uh you know my light goes off or goes on in the brain and uh yeah i definitely think that that's a very smart way of doing it and yeah facebook's a good way of of jogging your memory what are some of the craziest or who are some of the craziest characters that you ever worked with and again you don't have to name names but give me an example of one of the craziest things that maybe they did that we would we wouldn't know about as a general public <laughs> with that with, oh, I, without well, getting them fired arrested or people i work with. <laughs> i mean that's that hey it's your your opportunity to share whatever you yeah. think uh, funniest all right so in in my book grand theft auto there's a story in there about we did a search warrant out in queens and my partner's walking around with a, a hand grenade he found in a shoebox. <laughs> And he's walking around and he's like, yeah, from Vietnam era. I'm like, what, what? is that live? And he goes, yeah, I think so. And he's like marveling at us. I, <laughs> I don't want to curse on it. Put that thing oh, you down. Can, you can you know what I mean? And he's like, I was in the army. I'm like, dude, you were a cook. Like, <laughs> you weren't a Navy SEAL. You weren't, a, you know, put that thing down. So, hey, I've I, seen under I know what a cook can do. What's that? They said, I've seen Under Siege with Steven Seagal. I know what a cook can do. <laughs> the funny thing is we used to call this guy Steven Seagal because he was very immersed <laughs> in, in, in Asian culture. He was like a black belt in jujitsu and all that crap. And he'd be out in the parking lot, one of them poles, those sticks. And <laughs> he was a fisher. I worked with another guy we used to call cancer because he killed more people than cancer. Oh, uh, yeah, he was in a couple of really bad gun battles and came out on top. That guy, he that's a story from my book, um, NYPD Flying Circus. He used to work with, okay, so you want to talk about characters. So my old partner, Cancer, before he worked with me, used to work with a guy that was an amateur magician in his free time, right? Laziest cop in the world. Like, it's in the early 80s. <laughs> I mean, early 90s. We're going to bars, trying to pick up girls. And you couldn't compete with this guy because the magician would start pulling flowers out of his out of his sleeve and pulling coins behind he's like cock blocking you with magic so i used to tell my old partner i go get him that's out a, of that's here. a line i gotta write down what's that <laughs> cock blocking me with magic <laughs> that's in my book so anyway um so cancer was a real active cop and the magician wasn't so they get called so one night on the midnights they get called down to uh, a basement apartment it comes over as calls for help so they go into the basement and there's two apartments in the basement. You got the super's apartment and another apartment. So they go to door number one, they knock on the door, no one answers. My partner goes to knock on door number two and the magician tells him, 
Ah, oh, don't knock on that door. Come on, let's get a cup of coffee. He goes, well, let's just see. Let's just see. And he goes, come on, we made enough noise down here with our radios. If someone needed help, they, they would have come out already. Let's go. So the magician convinces my partner to leave. Now, what they didn't know was behind door number two, the door they didn't knock on, the super was selling Coke out of the apartment. And he had fallen behind. He was buying Coke on consignment and not paying his distributor. Well, in the drug world, they don't send debt collectors or friendly reminders or turn off your power. They sent a couple of these uh, Albanian guys and a girl. And what they did was it's an old gypsy trick. They knocked on the door and they put the attractive female in front of the door. So the soup is all coked up. He thinks he's going to you know, sell coke or get a blowjob. He opens the door for the girl. The three of them bum rush him. They start pistol whipping him, kicking his ass. Where's the money? Where's the coke? He doesn't have the answers. So they shoot the guy in the head, they roll him up in a carpet, and they take him out to the furnace, and they throw him in like a Puerto Rican fire log, right? So while he's roasting in the furnace, they go back into the apartment, and they're ransacking the apartment. Well, my old partner and the magician show up, and they're outside the door. So the two Yugoslavians tell the girl, all right, listen, this is what we're going to do. If these cops keep, if these cops knock on the door, you're going to let them in. Now, it was a railroad apartment, right, with rooms going off to the sides. We're going to be on either room. We're going to lead you lead them through the hallway yelling at Yugoslavia and pointing to the kitchen like, help, help. When you pass the threshold of that door, get down on the floor. We're going to come out and shoot the cops in the head, and then we'll throw them in the furnace, and then we'll get out of here. So that was the plan, but they never knocked on the door. They, The magician said, that's the, that's the title in the story, Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. So anyway, when they when my partner and the magician went outside, there was a car parked in the fire hydrant, which was the getaway car. So it's the same way they caught the son of Sam. They just unwillingly wrote a car, a parking ticket, right? So the super goes missing. People are looking for him. They check the 911 calls. They see that there was a call there a couple of nights ago. They pull my partner and the magician in. They go, do you, do you know anything about this? Yeah, there was a call for help. We knocked on one door. We didn't knock on the other door, but we wrote a parking ticket. Parking ticket leads back to the female. She starts singing. You know, she doesn't want to go to jail for the rest of her life. She's trying to cut herself out of the story, but she went down with them. They were able to, you know, round up the hitmen. They had to go back to the building like the next week in the dead of winter and shut the heat off to pull the guy's bones and teeth and skull out, out of the uh, furnace. Oh, my God. That's that's crazy. That's a wild one. That's a, Yeah, that's, that's a, I mean... The magician, a magician. That's why my books, I guess that's why my books sell because there's just stories like that there, you know? Yeah. I mean, geez. So, so in the nineties, I mean, you guys, you said you were, you know, be out in the eighties, you'd be out at the bars or whatever. Um, I mean, do you have any great uh, old timey stories from, uh, from, (laughs) from, you know, the heyday of New York city? Uh, What, just like hanging out? Yeah, just like hanging out with your cop buddies. It was a different time, okay? So back then, um, the Bronx was a different place. Um, there were more places to hang out. And it, 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 you, ever see the, you ever see the beginning of Goodfellas? Absolutely. Okay, so in the beginning of Goodfellas, this show, like he's talking, it was a joyous time and everybody's walking into the bar and everybody's, it was kind of like that, like in the cop bars. And just the shit that would go on, like just the funny stuff that I saw, like, there was one bar in the 4-0 called Star Wars. Okay. Can I curse on here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there was this one bar in the 4-0 precinct in the South Bronx called Star Wars. 
And it, it was like the cantina scene in mm-hmm. Star Wars. Like you had pimps, hoes. Um, it just fucked up people. What was the other? You see on the bar down the four row, they had a moose head. And every now and then someone would shoot the moose head. There was a moose head mounted above the bar. And it was like bullet hole ridden. Then you had Glackens that was owned by a correction officer. They were like open 24 hours. Like if you did a midnight, you go in there at seven o'clock in the morning. Like I wouldn't do like in my fifties, I would never think to do it. But when you're 21 years old and you just did a midnight and all the old timers are going to a bar, you want to be part of the crowd. So I've worked an overnight shift. I've, I've, I've done it. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know how I did it. Like, I, I don't know how I did it. Um, you know, not being a police officer, my frames of reference are obviously driven through movies and TV. And I mean, my one of my favorite shows or the favorite show of mine is The Wire. Did you ever watch The Wire? You know, it's funny you should say that because I just started watching that recently. I'm okay. One. I really enjoy that. It's it's yeah, it. I always tell people like if you're not it's by the third episode you realize that this is more than just a story about one particular gang and it's it's just it's widely considered the best drama because of the fact that it never leaves loose ends every single character that they introduce they always have not just they always I mean it's on for five seasons but they always there's always an ending to their character arc and you know, with the Sopranos, it can't always say that. You know, there was a lot of stuff that was still left unsaid, especially yeah, we, with the, the Sopranos was notorious for leaving you down a rabbit hole. Yeah, they leave something out there, and like, oh, they're gonna come back to that, and they never did. The Russian, the Russian. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the best episode, maybe the best episode of the Sopranos when, uh, oh gosh, when uh, Polly Walnuts and uh, the Pine Barrens, and yeah, when they're stuck in the. Car, the pine out in Jersey, pine, yeah, yeah, and they're <gasps> eating, they're eating ketchup and. <laughs> I I could watch that like right now, you know. It's, oh oh I yeah, kick out of that. That episode is so funny, and he's like, "You hit him, right? Yeah, yeah, I got him, I got him." <laughs> it's like right, and then it's like two kids trying to convince each other. Yeah, yeah, we got, yeah, we got them. Yeah, yeah. And then, but they never go back to it. It's just like, well, the best is the camera at that last scene when it pans up. That you know the guy climbed up a tree. Uh, if you watch that, right? They're okay. looking around, looking around. His footprints just end. Okay. And I, I think Tony says to them, "Do you want to go back or something?" They go, "No, no, fuck it." And the blood does like a blood trail, and it just stops. And then the camera just pans up. Mm. He's in a tree. Nah, uh, that's okay. I'll have to go back and rewatch that. Yeah. I wasn't maybe necessarily as. Uh, I mean, that's how I interpreted it. No, that would make sense. I mean, I definitely, you know, knowing filmmakers and the way that they used the camera. I mean, the camera is used to tell the story and they would much prefer to, especially David Chase, who, you know, created The Sopranos. He would prefer to show it than say it because, again, it's a movie or it's a show. And that's the whole point of that medium. Whereas, you know, as a writer, you're trying to write out how it's going to look and how it feels. And, and I'm sure that writing, you mentioned it being therapeutic and um, I assume that that has to help with one, not being a police officer anymore. And basically you're able to look at all the good times and stuff. And, and I'm sure that there were some, you know, not great times, but, 
it at least allows you to reflect on some of the funnier side of things and the things that you don't necessarily hear as just a normal person like myself. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to reading, reading your book. And uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I I just telling somebody, I was just talking to somebody the other day, they were asking me about my career and I said, you know, I'm lucky. Like, it's always what I wanted to do since I was five years. And you talk about David Chase. I mean, I grew up as a little boy. Um, and back then the movies were PG, R and X. And I was like six or seven years old. And I begged my parents to take me to see the French connection and the seven ups. And then every Friday night was the Rockford files, which uh, David Chase was involved with that. Right. Wasn't he one of the writers? I think so. And I just, I, I that's the era I grew up in and my parents wanted me to go to college and <laughs> I didn't, I wouldn't hear it. I, I, I wanted to be an NYPD cop and there was no stopping me. And, um, you know, I, I got to do something that I really enjoyed and worked in a place, a specific place in the NYPD where I always wanted to work, but never thought I could get there. And it, it was sad retiring. It, re- it really was because um, things were changing. The department was changing. My office was changing. And I'm a firm believer everybody outlives their usefulness. You could be the greatest employee or, or, or be the guy or, or, or know the most, but eventually you're going to get replaced. That merry-go-round is going to go on without you. And I saw it with so many other people that work there. And it's almost like, you know, the NFL, like better to get rid of a guy a year early than a year late. And um, I, I didn't think about retirement up until like two years before. And then I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. And everybody's like, oh, you're going to do 20. Are you kidding? You're, you're staying. You're a lifer. You're going to be at 30 years. Because I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, there were phases of it that I didn't enjoy. But overall, I've got no complaint. But for me, what I struggled with when I retired was the excitement. I love chasing car thieves. That's the best, worst, the worst secret. Like NYPD says, we don't chase car thieves. Of course they do. It's if someone <laughs> gets hurt, that's when they turn around and say, we told you not to chase. But I love the car chases. I love the foot chases. I love, like you were talking about the wire, the relationships with the district attorneys were great. Some of them, the judges, um, getting search warrants, um, getting up in the middle of the night to drive out to Queens to steal someone's garbage that they put out in front to find out who they were. You you know what I mean? Um, Just things like that, not steal, but they put it out to the curb. But I mean, just, it's things like that I miss. But the books enable me to kind of relive it and then, you know, telling these stories with, you know, people like yourself, you know, nice enough to put me on their shows. So I, I kind of get to relive it a little bit. I, and I guess that helps me. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's funny, like after I get off the phone, after I get off with you, I got to go pressure wash my roof. OK, now I'm 50 something years old. Right. And it's like I know. I, you know, I'd love to jump in a police car and ride around and look for Cauthies, but I know I'd pull something. Like, <laughs> I, I know if I had a you know, roll out of a car, I know I'd pull a muscle in my ass or, or tear my ACL. I know it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just, I, I can't do it no more. Yeah. You, 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 you pulled the plug. You, you pulled a Belichick. You pulled the plug a year before, right. or before you burned out. And, you know, you're kind of, I don't know. I th- I would say that you left at the right time. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, with everything that has gone on since, uh, but you know, as far as 
like I interviewed when I one of the first cases that I covered was uh, a missing girl here in Cleveland, uh, Amy Mahalovic, and she was um, 10 and I was 10. So it was one of those cases that always stuck with me. And so when I started podcasting, this is this was the first case that I did. And I did like 16 episodes on it. And I interviewed uh, Phil Torsney, who was former special agent with the FBI. And he's one of the guys that caught Whitey. Um, oh, okay. Bulger. And so he worked and he did work in Cleveland, but he did go to, and work in Boston after he worked in Cleveland. And then they brought him back as a special agent for, you know, the investigation that is ongoing. Um, I'm pretty sure he's off at the moment, but he said when he retired, cause he had to retire at 57 for the FBI from the FBI, it gets a forced retirement age. He's like, I was so jacked up. I went to Afghanistan (laughs) (laughs) as a, like as a contractor, he was, yeah, he, yeah, he's, I, I get every officer that I interview, it's definitely hard to hang them up or hang it up. And I think that it's like you mentioned the pro athlete side of things too. I think it's hard. It's always hard to just, you know, you're the last one to know. Well, true. Most people, I, I mean, most people, I just knew, I, I just saw there were new people coming in, new ideas. They were changing things. Um, it became more, um, everything was becoming computerized. They, it, it just, they didn't give you time to, to develop have, the case. They were on you, on you, on you. And I was like, Ugh. you would have had to learn a whole new way of policing. That's exactly right. In, in, in the last 10 years of your 30 years. So what would be the fun of that as far as. It wouldn't you know, have been. It, exactly. And it would have left a bit of tape. I got out at the right time, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, from the sounds of it and seeing how you, tell the stories and you're animated animated about it and you definitely seem like you could tell these stories all day every day and uh i have a feeling that this is definitely not the last book that you are no i'm right i got a fifth one i'm combing through now i'll probably have that out by spring okay well i uh let's plug give me some plugs you know plug your other other Um, books um, my first book, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die, is a politically incorrect way of how to live longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lot of my childhood and growing up in the Bronx and they, everybody would call like diseases and things the. So when I was a kid, you didn't want to get the cancer, <laughs> yeah. a heart attack, you know, the crabs, that everything was the. That book is, you know, politically incorrect way of living longer. Then I wrote... Um, NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. That's um, loaded with stories of uh, just the characters in the NYPD, the things they did. Same as NYPD flying circus, cops, crime and chaos. There's a story in there about a cop I knew we used to call him El Diablo and he wasn't Spanish. He was Irish, but he was the devil. And this guy had the Prince of Darkness working for him and um, wasn't a bad guy, but the, the, the shit that he pulled, there'd be no way he could get away with the things. To, to give you a perfect example, he's drinking in a bar in Midtown. This is from NYPD's Flying Circus. He's in a bar in Midtown and he's talking to a couple of floozies. I think they were prostitutes and he's kidding around with them and he's getting drunk. And one of those uh, horse and carriage guys, the handsome cab operators with the top hat and the coat comes walking in to use the bathroom. So El Diablo turns to the guy and he goes, hey, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a spin? And the guy goes, yeah, sure. He goes, okay, come on, ladies. 
He brings the two floozies outside, loads them into the carriage, and takes the horse, takes off with the horse and carriage. Well, the horse quickly figures out that there's an idiot behind the wheel or behind the, the reins or whatever you want to call it. The horse decides, I'm going to cut through Central Park and get some oats going back to the stable. He can't stop the horse and carriage. It's not stopping for lights. It's heading for Central Park. Well, the other handsome cab operators are along 57th Street are like, hey, there goes Joe's horse and carriage, and that ain't Joe. So you got like a Ben-Hur moment where you've got a stolen horse and carriage hauling ass through Central Park, and then you got the other guy's friends on their horse and carriages like Yonkers Raceway, like the Trotters, and they cut them off. I mean, I mean, it was almost a freaking catastrophe. So, I mean, long story short, they stopped the horse and carriage. The floozies took off. They wanted no part of this because they were prostitutes. And then um, he ran to an ATM machine and paid the guy, I guess, 500 bucks. I guess that's what you could take out. And like everything was, but I mean, it's stories like this. There was another uh, story from um, NYPD through the looking glass, um, the Brown Widow, a, a pretty Hispanic female cop. And she was notorious for busting up cops' marriages. And she was got involved with this older cop. He divorced his wife. And the kids disowned him and they started living together. Well, the guy drops out of a heart attack. So the guy's family has a funeral and the Brown widow shows up in a mini skirt and heels and uh, Jackie Onassis glasses. And she starts putting on a production at the casket. The guy's ex-wife gets up at the funeral and starts bitch slapping her and banging her head on the coffin and no one would help her. I mean, she got her ass kicked at a funeral and that one cop lifted a hand. So, I mean, it's a crazy things that went on. I mean, that I saw in the NYPD. I'm sure you're listening. will get a kick out of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds absolutely wild. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of these stories end up on, uh, on TV. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. And no problem, man. Thank you very a, much. Giving me a breakdown of your, you know, your history and your, your books and uh, it's always interesting to talk to you know police officers and hearing the the funny side of things opposed to some of the ugly side of things and at this point in time it's okay to have a little bit of uh humor and yeah we could all we could all use it all day long and i i could write doc all day long but i mean and i guess at some point i will but I, right now I'm having too much fun telling the funnier things that happen. There's dark stuff in there, but I give it an ironic. Yeah. You, you give it a twist. That's not going to make it. You're not going to leave feeling like, Oh man, they're sad. You know, there's going to be a, a humorous twist or an ironic twist to it. Yeah. Nobody likes the guy that drags the dead dog into the room. You, you know, right? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Definitely not. So I, uh, you said you had to go power wash your roof. So <laughs> yeah. uh, what's the temperature? It must be ni- nice there today. It's warmed up a little bit. It's uh, it's probably in the high 60s. Oh, geez. Wow. Even okay. the 40s this week. Yeah. So where are you located? I'm just outside of Tampa. Okay. So you're actually in Florida now. All right. I didn't realize that. So I was wondering. I'm like, man, you're going on the roof. and <laughs> I'm in Cleveland. No, no, so, no, no, no. So no, I'm, like, I'm like, wow, it's... Uh, it's only 50 here today, but I mean, I guess you could do your roof. <laughs> nah, that's nice. That's cool. So you're just outside of Tampa. How long have you been down in Florida? About 13 years. Oh, man. I have a buddy that lives up in Jacksonville, and 
That's and, nice up there too. Yeah, he's uh he sells medical supplies and yeah, his wife works for the Mayo Clinic and yeah, it's uh it's a beautiful area and they used to go to Key West all the time back in the early two thousands and late two thousands and um that's a wild <laughs> that's a whole nother part of Florida. <laughs> Oh, down in Monroe County, you toward the key. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Down, down. Yeah. My buddy's dad used to get a place at mile marker 25 at Summerlin Key, and we'd go down and hit Duval Street. And yeah, that was wild. <laughs> wild times. It's been a while since I've been down there, and I should take advantage of it. I'm only, you know. I think they're limiting now the cruise ships. So I think that is going to be a benefit for the locals. So um, that something to look forward to. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, again, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the show. And I, uh, again, enjoyed our conversation and, uh, be safe doing your power washing and (laughs) please do not fall off the roof. I'm going to, I'll try my best. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate you letting me come on your show. No, no problem at all, Vic. And it was a pleasure. And when you do come out with a new book, we can always do this again as well. I'd love to. Thank you. All right. Well, I will have a link in the show notes for all of your books. And again, be safe, stay healthy. And thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Have a great day, Vic. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of Who Killed? And many thanks to author Vic Ferrari for joining me during these crazy holiday times. As a reminder, he is the author of four books that are currently available on Amazon. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from the inside of America's largest police department. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. As well as Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. Again, all of his books are available on Amazon. I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you guys do enjoy this podcast, as well as other shows that I produce, you can help support my independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. Again, that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3 I will also provide a link in the show notes and just so you know every contribution really does help keep these podcasts running you can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever it is that you do listen to your favorite shows those five stars do help keep important cases that i cover such as angela's from last week in the spotlight And again, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, be healthy and stay safe. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. 
He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs>